In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, let's uh, start in prayer. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you, God, for your blessings. We thank you for this opportunity to be here together. Guard us, O Lord, that all times we, your children, would find the truth and that we'd walk in your ways through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue our Q&A sessions. Um, on the slide here, you can see the uh, link. If you would like to submit any questions for any future Q&As, um, please do so um, here at this link. In the name of the Father and the Son. Sorry. Uh, first question is, when are we supposed to make the sign of the cross? How are we supposed to do it? Some people make small crosses on their chest with only their thumb, and some make the sign of the cross their entire torso. Are we supposed to hold our three fingers together? So the, the, the cross, I mean, um, it's not like there is a, a right way and a wrong way. Like we believe in the, we believe in the power of the cross and the sign of the cross. Um, traditionally in the church, um, there are certain ways that it's done and actually it's changed. Um, the way we, you know, the way it used to be done a long time ago was actually with the thumb. Um, the thumb was seen as being like the strongest finger, right? So it represents like the power of God and one finger representing the unity of God. Um, as, and that God is one. Um, that's actually for, for a period of time in the early church, how, uh, the, the sign of the cross was done. Um, typically the sign of the cross should be done on the entire body. I mean, sometimes we do it, um, just, you know, over the torso, um, just over like the, you know, like over your stomach or, or like over your chest only without going all the way up to your forehead. Sometimes people will do this, um, especially when making the sign of the cross many times, like when we're saying like the 41 Kirele Sons, uh, during the Igbeya and people are wanting to make the sign of the cross often, um, it's faster to make the sign of the cross this way than to do it over the entire body um but uh but but typically it would be done over the entire body um where you start in the name of the father and on, on your forehead um the 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 kind of the way that um that we do the sign of the cross uh nowadays is that you use uh three fingers your thumb your index finger and your middle finger together um and and we make the sign of the cross with these three fingers the other two fingers, which is the ring finger and the pinky finger, they're like touching the palm of the hand as we make the sign of the cross. So the three fingers, they represent the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when we hold them together, it represents that um, all three are united as one, one God. And then the two fingers that are like resting on the palm of the hand, the pinky and the ring finger, these represent the incarnation of Christ from heaven to earth, okay, and can represent like the two natures of Christ, like his divinity and his humanity. So um, these are just symbols, um, kind of things to reflect on when we are making the sign of the cross. Um, when we cross ourselves, uh, we cross ourselves from the left side to the right side, okay? Um, when we say the Holy Spirit. So Father is the forehead 
And then the sun is down in our chest, representing that Christ came down from heaven. The Father is in heaven. Christ came down from heaven. And then the Holy Spirit, okay, we go from left to shoulder to right shoulder. And we do this um, based on the, the symbolism that Christ gives us in the Bible, where he speaks about how, like, those who are the people of God, those who are saved, um, the sheep are on the right hand of Christ. Whereas the goats, those who are perishing, are on the left hand. We find this in Matthew chapter 25, where it says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Okay, so when we go from the left to right, many things in the church actually are moving from left to right. Left to right means like being transferred from... Uh, you know, being lost, being away from God, right? And then moving to the right means like attaining salvation, like coming into the hand of God, like becoming children of God. So that's why we do it um, that way. The Eastern Orthodox Church actually does it in the reverse way, um, does it from right to left instead of left to right. And there's been different reasons to describe this. Some people say that when like the priest makes the sign of the cross from right to left, and you are looking at him, then it looks like left to right from the perspective of the people who are watching um, him. Um, other people have said that during the time of the Catholic Crusades, um, the Eastern Orthodox Church wanted to differentiate themselves from the Catholics um, because they, they disapproved of what the Catholics were doing and so on. And so that they switched the direction that they would make the sign of the cross as just like a way to separate themselves from the Catholic Church. Um, so uh, those are those are um, a couple reasons um, that people say it could be explaining why the, even the Eastern Orthodox Church that they they do the sign of the cross in the opposite direction. Number two, what does the verse in Exodus twenty verse four mean? Okay, this verse here, this Exodus twenty, should always remember this chapter. This is the chapter uh, where the for the first time in the Bible that is enumerated the Ten Commandments. So you see here all the Ten Commandments. Um, verse four, okay, it's, this is the second commandment. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, okay? So here when it's saying you shall not make a carved image, this is speaking about in the context of worshiping, right? Doesn't it, This doesn't mean that it's wrong to make a statue, right? It doesn't mean that it's wrong to sculpt something. You know, it means that it's wrong to have some kind of image that you worship, okay? And, and, and that image could be something that is a celestial body, you know? It could be something that is on the earth. Um, it could be something that is a, an animal or, or something that is uh, under the sea, okay? Any type of image that was created for the purpose of worship was forbidden, okay? This was extremely important for the people because... It was difficult for the Israelites to understand the concept of believing in a God who was invisible, right? That they had to believe on him by faith. And all the nations around them, right, they had their gods and their gods were, you know, statues, right, carved images. And they, these, these, their enemies, they're the Gentiles, they brought um, the, these pagans, they brought like these idols with them to war. They, they built temples and they put like, you know, their carved images in them. And so they, there was the sense because they could physically see these images, 
that there was like a sense of the presence of their gods with them. And that brought them comfort, that brought them um, a sense of like, you know, blessing that's coming from this God. Okay. But for the Israelites, God told them, do not make any carved image, not just do not make a carved image to worship it, like something that is in the heaven or something that is on the earth and so on, but do not even make a carved image of God himself, right? When, when um, Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, okay, um, and the Israelites that were still at the bottom of the mountain began to feel like Moses has disappeared, we don't know where he is, and so they came to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they told him, make an idol for us, like make, make a God for us, okay? So this is in Exodus 32. And it says, and Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right. So in, in their um, desire to feel taken care of and their desire to feel like God was present with them now, especially that Moses had gone from them, like they didn't know, you know, remember he was spending 40 days on the Mount Sinai. Um, so he, they, they didn't see him for a long time. And so they felt isolated. They felt alone. They felt abandoned. Okay. And even though they believed that there was a God and this God brought them out of the land of Egypt and they observed that the fact that they passed through the Red Sea, they clearly identified that there was miraculous things going on and that this God that was doing this for them was the God of Moses. And Moses would speak to them about this God, right? And so that they would believe in him, okay? So, so this God, they couldn't see him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know how to communicate with him, right? The only way that they knew to communicate with this God was through Moses at this time, right? So if Moses wasn't there, they don't know what to do. So because they lacked faith, because they couldn't, it was difficult for them to believe in a God who was invisible to them. Instead, they made this image and they considered that this image is the image of God, the image of the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so, so, so God is making clear here in this commandment. Okay, do not worship any other gods, but also do not make any carved image even of him to worship, right? It doesn't mean that you can't have an image of God, like you can have an icon of Christ, for instance, right? Or you can have a statue of Jesus, for instance, or a statue of, you know, other, other like St. Mary or other, other saints, so on, okay? Um, but not in the context of worshiping, okay? That we don't worship this icon as being God. We don't worship um, a statue of Jesus as being God, right? This is why actually in our churches, we don't put any statues, Okay. Not because the statues themselves are, are wrong. Like I said, you can use them as, um, as, as symbols. You can use them as reminders, just like we have icons in the church to remind us of the saints, to remind us of Christ, to remind us of the miracles, to remind us of history, to remind us of different things, right? Um, and we venerate those icons, but we don't worship those icons. We don't imagine that those icons represent God that we are worshiping, okay? But we don't put the statues in the churches simply because we don't want there to be a misunderstanding, right? In Egypt, there was a long history of persecution because of uh, the pagans that wanted the Egyptians, the Copts, to worship idols and to offer incense to idols, right? So we want to make it clear, like, we have nothing to do with this. 
like like we don't believe in idols we don't make idols we don't make carved images right god said not to make any carved images and to worship them right so that's why we don't we don't do that okay um so it's important for us to understand this that um here uh god was 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 telling us not to make any carved image and to believe in faith in his presence not because he's physically present in, in in the book of samuel we read about how the people um you know going to war against the philistines okay the israelites going to war against the philistines the philistines they had their their gods like their gods of war right and and whenever their gods of war they would bring them to the battle with them and they would feel safe and protected because of these gods are with them right i think the god his name was dagon so 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 this when when the egyptian or the, sorry when the israelites saw this of course they wanted to feel the equivalent they, they wanted to feel like we also have some something that reminds us of the presence of god with us okay and so what would they do they couldn't make any carved images so what they do is they would bring the ark of the covenant right with them to the battle the ark of the covenant was not intended to be used in this way the ark of the covenant was never supposed to leave the tabernacle, the holy of holies in the tabernacle. It wasn't. It, there, it, there were certain rules about the way that it was to be carried and transported, and it shouldn't be touched. And you know, there were people who, you know, there was one man who, who whose name was Uzzah, who one of the times when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, when it began to fall down, he held it to to keep it from falling, and this man died on the spot, right, because he touched the Ark of the Covenant when he shouldn't have. Right, the Ark of the Covenant was never intended to be transported and used in the way that it was, and again, it reflected a weakness among the people. Right, that we need, we feel like we need to have some physical object, you know, and that when this physical object is present, I feel like God is present with me, and when this physical object is not present, I feel like God is absent from me, and this is wrong. This is this is a lack of faith. Even sometimes now we we feel the same. Like maybe sometimes we. When we go on a trip, let's say to the monastery, right? Like a monastery is a holy place. You know, a monastery is a place of retreat. A monastery is a place of spiritual growth. And yes, but but it's not that God is more present in the monastery than he is present with us at any time, right? To believe the presence of God is with us, that God is omnipresent, that God is with us always, that God hears our prayers always, right? It is not that there is some area where God is more present than another. Okay, that God, we don't need to have a physical object for God to be present. The physical object reminds us of his presence. Okay, maybe the location reminds us of his presence. And certainly there are locations that we can do things that we can't do. Like in the church, for instance, we can have a liturgy, right? That we wouldn't be able to do elsewhere, right? But, but, but our faith tells us that God is always present with us. We don't need to have a physical object for God to be present, he is always because God is spirit and he calls us to worship him as spirit. In, in the eighth, number three, in the eighth chapter of the gospel of St. Matthew, our Lord Jesus cast out demons from two demon-possessed men. In verse 29, the demons speak with him saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, the son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What does before the time mean? Okay. Um, so again, this is in Matthew 8, verse 29. These demons, okay, when, when, they, when they see the Lord, right, they are tormented by him, right? They are tormented simply by seeing him, 
okay, and afraid because they recognize him. They see that he is powerful, okay? And so they say this, have you come to torment us before the time? So I'm going to read for you what St. Cyril of Alexandria, he, he speaks about this, okay? This is what he says. He says, the divine nature of the only begotten son was already scorching the demons in unspeakable flames. Like simply the presence of Christ, the divinity of Christ caused agony to the demons. Okay? Christ was shutting up the fiercest demons in blocked roads. He was undoing the devil's tyranny. You have come before the time they cried out for they knew from the scriptures that Christ was going to come and would judge them. Right? What is this speaking about? This is speaking about the end, the, the judgment day, that at the judgment okay, day, the devil would be judged. The final judgment, not only of man, but also of the devil himself. Okay, For they um, treating the incarnation as if it had happened at the wrong time. So he's, they're saying, you're, you're here early. Like, why, why are you here now? This is not the time yet for judgment. Why are you coming to judge now? They pled that he had come in an untimely way. This misrepresentation is not surprising. In their deceptiveness, they did not hesitate to say even this. Yet although they know that vengeance is to fall upon them, they still say haughtily, what have you to do with us? They know that the final judge, in fact, has a score to settle with them in as much as they had broken his commandments. Right. So the, the demons, knowing that this is the Lord, knowing his power, knowing that he is the judge, knowing that he was going to um, judge them, came to him and says, why are you coming now to judge? This is not yet the time of judgment. Are you here to torment us before the time, before the time of judgment? We read actually about the judgment, okay, of the devil and of the demons in, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Right? So this is the the condemnation of the devil and the demons, right? That they were to, they are going to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where they will be tormented. This is the ultimate judgment of the devil. And so here these demons and the devil for, for, for the moment, for this period of time that we're in, God has granted them freedom to work. He has granted them freedom, limited freedom for them to do things. Just like we see in the book of Job, that God granted the devil limited freedom. He told the devil, this is what you can do and this is what you cannot do, okay? At the moment that we're in now, also God has granted the devil limited freedom. He is allowing him to operate. He's allowing him to tempt. But there will be a time at the judgment day where everyone is judged. Even the devil himself will be judged and he will be cast into this lake of fire while he will no longer have dominion, while he will no longer have authority. You know, we, we tend to think of like, the devil as though he is like the boss of hell like you know like he is the number one man in hell he is like the leader right and in that sense he has authority and and others you know demons are subject to him and maybe for now in the present time this is how it is but at the time of the judgment the devil is not going to have no authority over anything he himself will be tormented and without any end okay so this is what these demons were referring to here in Matthew um, chapter 8. Number 4. In the book, The Life of Anthony, section 25, it says about the demons, very often also, without appearing, they imitate the music of harp and voice, 
and recall the words of scripture, right? So saying the demons themselves appear in a pleasant way. The demons themselves quote the scripture, okay? Sometimes too, while we are reading, they immediately repeat many times like an echo, what is read. They arouse us from our sleep to prayers, saying even the, the demons sometimes can encourage us to do spiritual practices. And this constantly, hardly allowing us to sleep at all. But no heed must be paid them, even if they arouse to prayer, even if they counsel us not to eat at all, right? Like encouraging us to fast even more strictly. Uh, e even though they seem to accuse and cast shame upon us for those things which they once allowed, right? So, so this like they're they're attacking us in two ways. They're 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 you know when when we are um, when we are doing wrong, they accuse us, but at the same time, they're always telling us that we need to do more right. Okay, for they do this not for the sake of piety or truth, but that they may carry off the simple to despair, and that they may say the discipline is useless and make men loathe the solitary life as trouble and burden and hinder those who in spite of them walk in it. Okay. With this being said, it sounds like the devil might sometimes advise people to do the right things for the wrong reasons, which seems to be very dangerous. When I hear a voice inside my head, how can I distinguish whether this is the voice of God for me or my voice talking to myself or the voice of the devil trying to deceive me? Um, So someone is asking about the previous question. Will the unbelievers or those who God will condemn be cast in hell? Is hell a sort of literal lake of fire or just a separation from God? Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's difficult to think about it in terms of physical, right? Because it, it, it's not like there is physical, right? But it is not just a mindset. It's not just a state of mind. It's like a place. It's like a place where we are, just like heaven is a place, right? So in the sense that when we go to heaven, Heaven has a form, heaven has a structure, heaven has a throne of God, heaven has angels, heaven, heaven has, you know, singing, right? Um, hell also has a place, it's a, it's a place. I, I can't point to it and I can't really analogize it to some physical place, but it is a place. It, it certainly is a place, um, just as Christ has said that it is a place and it is a place where someone can go, right? Um, so um, this lake of fire uh, is... is you know, I, I can't I can't say more about it than that, but it's definitely some distinct, you know, state or place that the, that the devil will be cast. Um, back to this question number four. So, so essentially, what is what is Saint Anthony speaking here about the devil? Okay, he is um, making like making clear the cleverness and the deception of the devil. Okay. Remember what Christ said about the, the Satan? He said that he is a liar, he is the father of lies, and that when he lies, he's like speaking his natural language. Every, literally, literally, everything that the devil says is either a lie or part of a lie. When he says the truth, it's because it's part of a bigger lie, right? And, and the lies are of all different types, right? So, for instance, when we sin and then we repent of sin, the devil lies to us and says, how is it that God could forgive you for this thing that you have done? Okay, that's one type of deception. Another type of deception. When we are like, you know, progressing spiritually, the devil might come to us and make us think that you are not progressing fast enough. 
you need to do more prayers. You need to do more of this. Unless you do more and more and comparing ourselves maybe to other people, it says, no, you are, you, are, you are lazy. You're not doing, you're not doing enough. Maybe that will make us feel guilty. Maybe that will make us feel burdened. Maybe that will make us feel like I can't keep up the pace. You know, sometimes people, um, you know, try to load themselves with too many things that is beyond their ability, right? And so they burn themselves out, right? Because they can't continue. Or maybe to someone else who is actually able to keep up with all of these prayers and, and spiritual um, uh, works, that the devil comes to them and makes them feel like, look how good you are compared to others. You know, like, like you... You are very special. You are very gifted. Like you are such a holy person, right? Which is also a deception, right? To get us to fall into pride. So in whichever way, in whichever approach, right? The devil takes, even when he presents us with something that appears pleasant. I mean, remember the, 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 the forbidden fruit appeared pleasant to Eve, right? It, it, it appeared pleasant. Just like here, when, he, when it says that the um, very often... Um, also, without appearing, they imitate the music of harp and voice and recall the words of scripture, things that seem right and good, okay? Um, we know stories from like the paradise of the fathers and, um, and some of the stories of the saints where maybe a, a person decided to become a monk and go live in the wilderness and, and pursue uh, like, like an ascetic life and a solitary life. And then a demon would come to them disguised as a person, as a human being and say, you need to go back and serve your parents. Your parents are ill. They need you. How did you come out here on the desert, you know, in the desert, uh, you know, for yourself? And that was a very selfish act. And you need to go serve your parents, right? And leave the desert, right? So again, he's, a, he's approaching it from the perspective of it is your Christian obligation. It is your Christian duty to go and to serve, serve your parents. And so you must leave. And it was only after prayer that this, you know, person, this monk discovered that this person speaking to him was actually a demon um, trying to get him to leave his, his, you know, solitude, right, in order to go back. So, so oftentimes the devil will tempt us with what sounds like piety and what sounds like holiness and what sounds like righteousness, but it is for the purpose of destruction, right? It is, it is and it, it takes a discerning mind to be able to tell, okay, what is for my good? Uh, let me read for you something from the Ladder of Divine Ascent, um, which is a very famous book about like spiritual struggle. Um, it says, Evagrius, afflicted by an evil spirit, imagined himself to be the wisest of the wise, both in thought and expression. Okay, this monk, he, 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 he was tormented by this evil spirit that convinced him that he was a very wise person. But he was deceived, poor man, and proved to be the most foolish of fools in this, among other things. For he says, when our soul desires different foods, then confine it to bread and water. What is he saying? So this man, Evagrius, okay, being an ascetic person, okay, um, was deceived into thinking that he was, um, you know, more advanced spiritually than he really was, and in even giving advice that was um, unreasonable to people. So what was the advice he was giving? He was essentially saying to any of these, so this is really addressing the monks, right? So he's saying to the monks, um, if you desire any type of food, only eat bread and water. Never eat anything else, right, except bread and water. And then it goes on. To prescribe this is like saying to a child, go up the whole ladder in one stride, right? Maybe, maybe there are many who cannot sustain this type of life, right? Maybe to some who are advanced in their spirituality, 
They could fast for days and not eat or only eat bread and water. But here he's giving this as a general advice to people who are not ready for it. Okay. And so rejecting his rule, let us say, when our soul desires different foods, it is demanding what is proper to its nature. So, so here he's saying it, there's nothing wrong with eating different kinds of foods, right? Because that is actually part of our nature, part of our human desire. There's nothing wrong with eating different kinds of food. It's not sinful. And this spiritual uh, discipline that this man Evagrius was trying to apply was too difficult, right? And he considered him to be what? Afflicted by an evil spirit for saying this, okay? So sometimes what, what sounds like asceticism, what sounds like righteousness, what sounds like spirituality can actually be demonic, okay? Coming from the devil. So what are some pitfalls, okay? that we might have in our spiritual life and how do we try to resolve them? Number one, there is always going to be peaks and troughs. There's always gonna be moments of like high points and, and spirituality and there's gonna be low points where we feel cold, okay? And we feel everything is heavy and we feel like I don't want to pray and we feel like I don't want to read and I don't wanna to go to church and I don't wanna do those things, right? And so in order to deal with both these opposites, we have to be balanced in our in our approach and be expecting and understanding what is happening to us, right? So that we are not so moved by our momentary emotional state that we make bad choices, right? So for instance, in moments of peak, right? And I've, you know, I've known people who in the moment of peak, uh, like spiritual heights, they wanna pray all the Agbeya, they wanna read the entire Bible, they want to, you know, serve and they wanna do this and this and this and this. And and it becomes to the point where, like, I tell them, no, you don't do this. Don't give this much money to the church. Don't do it. This is too much. You can't, you can't afford to give that much. God, God told us to pay the tithe, which is 10%, you know, and if you want to pay a little bit more than that, okay, but don't give like 80% of your money, you know, in that moment of peak, in that motion of motion. Like, I know people who, you know, gave a lot of money to the church and then um, regretted it later after that period of, you know, speak of you know feeling like like very spiritual in that moment or very emotional in that moment if you want to call it that um and then regretted what they had done and now they couldn't take it back again right so um similarly when you're in a low point right when you're in a low point and, and then it's easy to have fallen into despair to, to feeling cold and to wanting to give up altogether right also there we shouldn't respond to our emotions right we should say, okay, there is there is something I will continue to do even when I don't feel like doing it, number one. And on the other side, there is, I'm not going to try to do more just because I feel enthusiastic in the moment, right? And, 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 and this is where like the role of the spiritual father comes in very, very much because he is objective and he is experienced and he knows us. And so he can see when we are in a peak or when we're in a trough and he can guide us through these times right? Because we, we, we sometimes, we have good intention, right? But we, at the same time, we might not be really aware of what's happening to us and make poor choices, okay? So this idea of being overly ascetic, okay? Overly ascetic at the wrong time or giving up completely at the wrong time. Also, it might make us to fall into the idea that salvation is by works, right? You know, we believe that salvation is, is by the grace of God, right, through his blood, that we believe on it by faith, right, it is not by works, works is evidence of my faith, okay, 
but it is not it is not the purpose of it is not what is bringing me salvation okay so um when i do good works when i fast when i struggle when i push myself to do more than you know than what i'm used to doing okay it is for the purpose of subduing the flesh it is for the purpose of wanting my spirit to draw closer to god that should be the motive the motive is not that unless i fast this amount of fasts then i've lost my salvation or this is necessary for salvation and without this then i have no salvation no that's that's a different perspective that's a different view that's that's false right also there is a need for gradualism not jumping from from one level to another to another quickly right i need to go slowly and I need to focus more on the quality rather than the quantity. I make sure that I am consistent, right, in my spiritual practices, not focus so much on how much, but focus on doing them well and doing them consistently. And that over time, I can begin to increase that with the guidance of my father of confession and with accountability with him, right, because he will follow up with me and know the, the situation that I was in. And again, in the paradise of the fathers, there are uh, many examples where, um, that where monks were deceived, like monks with good intentions, thinking themselves to be doing the right thing, and yet they failed and were deceived, and 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 because because they they didn't listen to their their fathers, right? Like there are stories where you know a monk is visited by a demon, but pretending to be an angel or pretending to be an anchorite, pretending to be a saint, okay? But he's really a demon, and he believes everything that this demon is saying against the advice of his father of confession, and he ends up falling into disaster as a result. So, so always listening to guidance of, of, of like our father of confession to help us through these wild, you know, variations and changes, okay? Um, number five. Um, I saw two versions of St. Macarius the Great's icon that I would like to know from your reverence what they mean. In one of them, he is showing both his hands open, and in the other one, he is standing with the cherub and holding his hand. Okay, so um, before, so so first thing is just to avoid confusion because we use the term Macarius, the Saint Macarius. Saint Macarius, there's actually many different Saint Macarius. Okay, and actually the name Macarius means blessed. That's what Macarius means. So in our church, the main three when we speak about Saint Macarius, there's Saint Macarius the Egyptian, which is also Saint Macarius the Great. This is the one we're talking about. He was one of the disciples of Saint Anthony. Okay, um, very famous. Okay, there was also Saint Alex Saint Macarius the Alexandrian. This is the second one, and there's also Saint Macarius the Bishop of Edco, which is uh, a city in Upper Egypt. So this is the third one. So usually when we're speaking about Saint Macarius, we speak about Saint Macarius the Great because he was like the most famous one. Um, but but just so you're aware, there's there's several Saint Macarius. Um, as far as his icon, there isn't only two ways to depict his icon. Like these are two of the ways. But actually, when I was looking online, there are lots of different um, icons of Saint Macarius that that look different than this as well. Okay. So as far as the the icon on the right here on the slide, where Saint Macarius is holding the hand of the cherub, this is directly from his story, uh, which is from the Cynaxarian. So. His feast day is the 27th of Baramhat. And if we read, I'm just going to read a small excerpt, which explains kind of how he started and, and, and where this cherub came in. So this says, um, again, this is from the Synaxarian, the 27th of Baramhat. It says, when he grew up, 
His father pressed him to get married against his will, so he pretended to be ill for several days. Then he asked for his father's permission to go to the wilderness for rest and seclusion. In the wilderness, he saw a vision, a cherub with wings, held his hands and took him up to the top of the hill and told him, God has granted this desert to you and your sons after you as an inheritance. When he returned from the wilderness, he found his wife, who was still a virgin, had died. Shortly after, his parents departed, and he gave all what, he, what they had left for him to the poor. So he went to Shanshur and dwelt in a hut in the outskirts of the city. So this cherub that he met actually in the desert um, is the one who led him by the hand up to the top of this mountain and, and showed him this land and said that essentially um, that he is going to be um, a father of monks, right? And, um, and that God has granted this desert for their monastic, their monastic struggle. Okay, so that's why we have the icon with the cherub. As far as the other icon, I tried to do research to understand like why that specific pose, and I couldn't really find, um, I couldn't really find anything, um, you know, apart from saying maybe that he's just like a, a type of like him just standing for prayer and putting his, his hands out for prayer. Um, someone is saying, I heard His Holiness Pope Shinoda say that Saint Macarius is holding of two hands like that is not authentic and he refuses to sign this particular depiction of him. Perhaps that's the case, I don't know. Um, uh, so so I, I just couldn't find any reasoning behind that particular pose or what that meant. But the one on the right certainly is is um, is based on his story um, and, and what we know about his history. Number six, the world is full of evil and sometimes looking at what is going on around us feels scary as though God is not in control anymore. I know that this feeling isn't right. How can I not be anxious and have more trust in God regardless of the circumstances? Um, so when the Lord was about to be crucified, okay, and he knew that this was going to be a very traumatizing event for his for his apostles he knew that it was going to be very difficult for them he know he knew that they were going to feel abandoned he knew that he they were going to feel like the entire world was against them because literally the entire world was against them right the apostles nobody everyone was against christianity and and no matter where they would go they would be persecuted so imagine how like the the apostles feel in that in that moment okay uh and so Christ is preparing them um, for what is about to happen about, you know, he tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit to comfort them. He tells them in John 16, 33, where he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world, right? So he's letting them know ahead of time what to expect and, and, and telling them, that he will be with them, that the Holy Spirit will be a comforter for them and guiding them throughout all of the trials and struggles that they will experience, okay? But he never at any time tried to make them think that there would be no struggle or that everything would be easy or they would not have any suffering or any trials in the world. Okay? He never ever once tried to communicate this. He only spoke about how the fact that God is using trials for self-purification God is using trials for salvation. God is using trials to glorify himself. God is, is comforting us in our trials. God has overcome the world. All those things he said, and all those things he said to comfort the apostles, but never at any time did he, did he tell us 
or you tell them that there would not be difficulties in the world. Okay. So the the true the, the same applies to us. Okay, just just as it applied to them. We should not have an expectation that the world around us is a safe place, that the world around us is a place that is free from discomfort, that is free from struggle, that is free from sorrow, right? It, 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 it clearly, clearly, you know, it is it is not. We are not exempt from that, okay? And that should not make us feel like God is not in control because just as with the apostles, God was in control the whole time and yet he still allowed all of that to happen to them, okay? Um, so the by knowing what it is that we should expect, we shouldn't lose heart, okay? Um, even when we see around us things are corrupt, even when we see around us the things are going and are in a wrong direction, right? We read in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, it says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So we live in a world that is perishing. We live in a world who's, which is full of people whose minds the God of this age has blinded, and that they do not see the truth of the gospel because their eyes are veiled. It's, 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 it's hidden from them. Right, it's hidden from them because they do not want to see. Right, they do not want to see. Okay. Also, Christ spoke about, you know, the the world, and he said, "I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and has nothing in me." Who is the ruler of the world? The ruler of the world is the devil. Okay. Also, in Ephesians two, he speaks about the devil and his influence on the world. It says, "In which you once walked according to the course of this world." according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, right? The sons of disobedience, the gods of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, all of this is pointing to what? The corruption of the world, like the, the wickedness in the world. And so as we look around us and we see the wickedness in the world and we see the heightening of this wickedness and we see the amplification of this wickedness and we see... That, that things are becoming more and more difficult. Our reaction should not be um, that we begin to doubt God, right? It actually should be a confirmation of everything God has told us was so. But at the same time, God did not just communicate this knowledge to us so that we are aware of the situation. He said, he, when, when, when Christ said um, in John 16, when he says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace, He's, he's speaking, what are these things? He's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? About that he has overcome the world. So even as we are living this life and we are struggling in it, we are always reminded that the Holy Spirit is in us. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we conquer the world. Conquer not meaning that we are able to overpower our enemies. Not, not to mean that, you know, our, our armies are bigger than their armies, like the physical. Not to say that we are going to be able to win the war of ideology, that we are going to be able to win the war and win everyone back from the corruption of the world. Because here Christ said that the prince of the power of the air, right? The one who has dominion over this world, he is the one working in the sons of disobedience. And the God of this age has blinded the people, right? So it is, it is, it is, it is the coming of the end, you know? When we think about 
the direction that and I'm not trying to say that it's the end of the world now. I'm, I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm saying the, the inevitable signs of the end that will eventually come, okay, in the times of great tribulation. And we know that Christ spoke about this in Matthew 24. He said, for them, there will be a great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor no, nor ever shall be, right? What is the danger of this tribulation in the end? It's when Christ is saying that at the end, that even the elect will lose faith because it's, it's, we will start looking at the scary things that are happening and lose heart and lose faith in, in, the, in the protection of God instead of reminding ourselves that God is ever-present, even in the midst of those things, right? Because Christ says that in this tribulation, it will be more, there will be more tribulation than has ever been, ever been ever before, okay? But in the end, God has declared ultimate victory, right? Ultimate victory. In John 12, now is the judgment of this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In the end, God has already told us that there will be victory, for the children of God, but this doesn't mean that the victory is going to come for free. It doesn't mean that it's going to come immediately. It doesn't mean that everyone around us is going to suddenly become a believer, right? We are a minority and we have to live as such, not expecting that the world is going to be like us, is going to talk like us, is going to value the same things that we value, is going to pursue the same things that we pursue. It's going to love the same things we love and hate the same things we hate. So we cannot live as though we are expecting the approval of the world. We cannot live as though we want to appear like the world because more and more appearing like the world means that we are appearing like the devil, right? We had gone through a period of time, at least in this country, where there was a lot of common moral ground that even for people who were not churchgoers or were not Christians or were not, um, you know, didn't share our faith, but there was a, a largely a commonly held sense of values and morals that was shared among all people, the majority of people. And so when we dealt with people, we dealt with people with kindness, we dealt with people with politeness, like there were certain things that is acceptable, certain things that are not acceptable, uh, certain things that are considered good and certain things that are considered evil, right? Even by those who are not necessarily Christians or practicing Christians. But as time passed and, and certainly today, we live in a time where there is very little shared values, right? There's very like, like there was a time where the concept of family values was almost universal. Like the idea of family is important, okay? It's good for there to be, you know, like, like, a, like a strong family, right? That was a no brainer. That was something taken for granted by everyone. But now you have a large percentage of the population that are attacking family values and are thinking, no, there doesn't have to be um, kind of uh, a unified family, right? There, there, there doesn't have to be a man and a woman and children. It could be anything. It could be a single mom, a single dad, two men, two women, you know, and, and, and in their eyes, all of those are equally good, right? Because they're judging it according to the mindset of man, not the mindset of God. And that the, the, not just the, the faith in God, but the morality that came from God is been completely ejected from society, right? So more and more we find ourselves in the minority and more and more we cannot stay under the radar. More and more our decision to remain faithful to what we believe is going to elicit attention, negative attention, 
right? It's going to elicit attention from those who attack the way that we believe because it is not like them. And again, it reminds us of the time of the apostles. The apostles preached a message that was contrary to everything that was at the time, right? And they suffered as a result, but they also were able to convert the world, right? They were able to to, to, to bring the truth and the light of Christ into the world, okay? And maybe we can do that. Maybe maybe God will provide some kind of revival. Maybe, like I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that we are living in the end times. I don't know if we are or not. Maybe God will, can do that. But our responsibility, whether it is the end times or not, whether we are going to be, you know, a, a force of transformation in the world that will cause a revival in the world, or whether it is the end and this is the great tribulation or whether whatever it is, okay? God is calling us to live a certain way, right? And to live faithfully, right? What he chooses to do with our faithfulness, with our obedience, what He what he's gonna do with the world, how he's gonna influence the world through us, this is not our business, it's up to him. But but he calls us for faithfulness and he calls us to believe His he is with us and to be not anxious or afraid because he is with us right? That he walks with us, that we have victory and we have conquered, right? We are more than conquerors, right? Through Christ. Uh, a couple comments. Is it true things are getting worse morally and more difficult socially at our time than previous times? I mean, there have certainly been uh, ups and downs, just like in anything. Like, so for instance, if you look back to the Roman times, okay, in the Roman times, it was acceptable for there to be an audience in a, like the Colosseum, where you bring in these Christians um, and people watch them being maimed by lions and applauding. Like that was, that was a sport. Like that was, that was something that people did. Okay. If you look at our society today, I would say we're definitely better than that. Right. We're, we're definitely, we're not, we're not by any means um, that, you know, animalistic as we were at the time. Okay. But from the from from another perspective, from a moral perspective, the 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 Renaissance period or the 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 the, the peak morality. Can I remember, like in America, America was founded by um, at least of the Europeans who came here. They were predominantly Christians, and they predominantly established America based on Christian morals. And people will argue about that, but it's clear that most of the founders came. Uh, were Christian and they established Christian morals and the Christian morals are interweaved into the Bible. Like even, even like, you know, in the constitution where it says that we are created equal because, because we are endowed with uh, like, 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 like we have unalienable rights, rights because we are created in the image of God. Right. So, so there is, there is a sense of divinity. There is a sense of supernatural. There is a sense of there is something greater than us that is endowing us with rights. That rights is coming not from just like the, the, the like from man, but it's co rights coming from God, like dignity is coming from God, right? So, so that at the stage that we're in now is certainly eroded, right? Now we are more naturalists, materialists, atheists, just caring and believing only in the physical world. You know, more and more these atheists, they don't even believe in free will, right? So, while from an external perspective, we are, we are no longer as brutal, maybe as times past and in other societies, but, but the eroding of the fundamental uh, Christian principles that our country had been founded on is making us here, here in this place, 
to feel a big difference than in years past. Um, I'm not trying to say that we are now worse than anything has ever been. I don't think that's the case. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, you know, they, they were they were destroyed by God because of their sexual immorality, right? It's not to say that we are the first generation or this is the only time and place where there's been sexual sin or, or other kinds of sin. But certainly we see a degradation of what came before. And that degradation is, you know, is related to these verses that I'm speaking about. The God of this age has blinded, right? There is more evil entering the world. There is more faithlessness. There is more rebellion against God in general. There is, there is more atheism. Certainly there's more atheism today than there has ever been in the past. Um, and anyone of any religion that believed that their God had some kind of moral standard why, by, why, by, where, whereby they had to live, and that they were obliged to, to live by that moral standard, whether you are Hindu or Buddhist or, or anything other than atheist, right? You still felt like there was some code, right? There was some moral code that I had to live by. Whereas now more and more we see there is no moral code. There's no, there's nothing, right? It is simply pure selfishness. It is simply pure um, animalistic hatred that drives so many people today. And what it is that people feel is acceptable behavior, acceptable speech, um, and so on. So, so in that sense, yes, I would say it's definitely going in the wrong direction, for sure. Um, someone is saying, how do we use the Holy Spirit to help us with our anxiety? So anxiety comes because we feel powerless, and we feel afraid, and we feel worried about something that is out of our control. Right? That's why we feel anxious. But if we felt that everything is taken care of, if we felt that someone is in control of what's going on, that someone has a plan and that plan is being executed perfectly, if we felt like, like someone who is very powerful is with us all the time, like imagine like, you know, this is of course not a perfect analogy, but imagine like the president, for instance, who has secret service with him, right? Even though there are people that hate him and, you know, want to kill him, but he's got more protection, like physical protection from the Secret Service than any other human being on Earth. To, to the point where everywhere he goes, that place has to be pre-screened and searched and, and, and everyone that approaches him has to be searched. And like there is so much effort that was put to protect him because of who he is um, in, in, in the form of like all these Secret Service and all these government officials and so on. So I would imagine that, you know, someone who had that same level of protection, whenever you would walk around in the world, you would never worry about bullies. You would never worry about someone coming up to you and hurting you because you've got like the strongest force, you know, protecting you, right? Um, so if we think about that from the spiritual perspective, right? Just like in the story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi, when the Syrian army was coming to attack, Gehazi was worried, right? And, and he was worried what's going to happen to them. And Elisha prayed and he asked God to open the eyes of Gehazi so he would see the spiritual army of angels that was there protecting them, right? Elisha was never worried. He never had any anxiety because with his eyes, his spiritual eyes, he could always see this army. This army of angels was always apparent to him, always visible to him. He never had to be concerned because they were always present. But in the mind of Gehazi, he never saw this before. So that's what caused him to be afraid, right? 
So the, the, the answer to anxiety is to see with the spiritual eyes to believe in everything God has already promised. Like God has already promised these things. God has already promised that we have ultimate victory. God has already promised that we will spend eternity with him in heaven. So to really feel, you know, do not feel anxious means that I believe these, these are true promises and that I believe that I'm being protected. But that protection, right, doesn't mean that I'm not going to experience hardship in the world, right? And that's important. Christ never promises that. He never promised his apostles that. <clears throat> and in the end, we know that his apostles were martyred, right? It's difficult maybe for us to think in terms of, I might be martyred and yet I'm not going to be anxious, right? That's a lifelong struggle of how to have peace in the midst of a world that is very difficult and there's plenty of suffering in it. But those who are truly like, like understood and those who have truly been touched by God and truly believe and truly seek from God his, his protection have learned through, you know, the grace of the Holy Spirit, through their own spiritual struggle, how to have that faith at all times so that what happens to them in the world is not as important as, as the fact that God is with them at all times. And that is what we learn. That is what we are called to grow into as Christians. And that if we are able to live like this, then it frees us from any kind of fear. It frees us to be like the apostles, where we can go stand boldly in front of a group of people, hundreds or thousands, and to speak boldly about our faith, knowing that it will be rejected, knowing that we could be even harmed as a result, because we are so uh, we, we are we are so sure and confident of God's presence and of what we are doing that it doesn't make us to be afraid. Okay. Um, one last question, number seven. What does the verse that says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men mean? Okay. So this is speaking about as Jesus was grew from, 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 you know, prior to this Luke chapter one, it spoke about his being born and it speaks about like his youth and, 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 and how he is like, it's transitioning us from the time of the youth of, of Christ to the time of his adulthood and the beginning of his ministry. Okay. So the question is, is what does it mean? For, for it to say that he increased in wisdom and, stra and stature and favor with God and men, okay? So we know that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, okay? But it's easy for us to understand what does it mean for, for him to be God? Because our concept of God is God is perfect, God is powerful, God is omnipotent, God can see everything, God can do anything, okay? But when you take that God, that divinity, and you, you put it inside of a man, okay? Now there's this confusion, right? Because it's like, how, how, how does a God-man act? How does a, what is a God-man? Jesus was fully man. Fully man, meaning he experienced everything that we experienced, yet, with, yet was without sin, right? That's what we say about him. He was in all ways like us, except he was without sin, right? So Jesus experienced everything that human beings experience. Jesus experienced hunger. God doesn't experience hunger, but Jesus experienced hunger, right? So even though in his divinity, he didn't need food, but in his humanity, he needed food, right? So, so, so Jesus, as a boy growing up, he was not like, you know, like imagine Jesus in school, okay? Like, did he have the answer to every question? 
Like, did he know everything about everything? You know, like, like there is some sense of, of Christ allowing himself to experience the development of a human, right? The development of a human. And certainly, like, we know that he was very advanced and that he was in the temple teaching, right? Even when he was young, okay? But when he was a baby, for instance, could he speak full sentences when he was a baby? Like, like could, could, could he, was he exercising the fullness of his divinity at all stages of his human life? And the answer to that is no, right? He didn't. Um, he grew both in body and in mind, right? He grew both in body and mind. That's not to say that his divinity was lacking. It's to say that he allowed himself to experience the fullness of humanity and did not allow his divinity to override that natural process of growing as a human being, okay? St. Jerome, he says, how does he who is wisdom receive understanding? He is wisdom, right? He is the word of God. He is the logos. He is the mind of God. How does he who is wisdom receive understanding? Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. This means not so much that the son was instructed by the father, that that his, but that his human nature was instructed by his own divinity. So it's like he's saying that the divine nature of Christ instructed and nourished his human nature gradually over time, right? So in that sense, when he was a baby, he acted like a baby. And when he was a toddler, he acted like a toddler, right? Like Jesus would struggle to walk just like any child that is in that developmental phase, right? He didn't say, well, because I am God, I'm going to just do everything perfectly from the first time. He was fully, truly human being. And that's why when we look at him, we say he shared everything with us, right? He shared, he was fully one of us, which is why he was able to bring salvation to us because he was fully man while being fully God at the same time. So this is what it means when it says he increased in wisdom and stature, right? Because he was actually progressing. He was actually growing. It wasn't just an act that he put on pretending like he was going through this process. He really was like going through this process. Uh, okay. Um, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, so let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, God, for this day. We ask, O oh Lord, that you be with us as a church and us as individuals and protect us, O oh Lord, during these difficult days. Keep us strong in our faith, free from anxiety. Strengthen, O oh Lord, by your presence and joyful, O oh God, because we see that your purposes and your will are being fulfilled throughout, O oh Lord, our days. Help us to see your glory, O oh Lord, and to realize the fullness of your majesty, to walk with you, O oh God, and to see your power and to be comforted in your presence. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye. God bless you.